Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. As business rises to the challenge of fixing our future, every company is faced with a stark choice. Do they want to lead? and benefit from the rising market forces that reward companies for doing good? Or will they content themselves as followers because of uncertainty, inertia, or fear of risk? Thinking that decision through is one thing. Acting on it is another. But as the social and environmental challenges we face become clearer and more present in the lives of people and companies around the world, the case for taking the lead is fast becoming a mandate. So how are the Vanguard companies showing up? How do they think through when and how to show up and speak up and stand up? And what are the unique mindset and practices of leaders at their helm? Let's dig in and find out. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm joined by Charles Kahn, board chair at Patagonia, one of the world's leading environmentally friendly clothing brands committed to teaching and training the next generation of environmental activists and using business to inspire and implement a solution to the ongoing climate crisis. And we'll discuss how and why business can deliver on its foundational promise of improving lives and our future and how an imperfectionist mindset best equips us to build thriving companies and nurture our planet. So Charles, welcome to Lead With We. It's really good to be here, Simon. Thanks for having me. Now, I got to ask you, between the board chair of Patagonia, you know, the European Council for Global Conservation, Oxford Sciences Innovation, and now, you know, author of your latest book, Imperfectionist, how does Charles describe himself? It's very confusing, Charles. How do you distill it down? Oh, God. I mean, that's a great question. I don't think I've had it like that. I like to think of myself as an environmentalist, as a conservationist who works across multiple platforms. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. That's great. And it's funny how those sort of singular distillations then find all these different forms of expression. But I ask that because every one of us that has chosen to lead in these spaces for some time, they had that sort of catalytic moment years ago that kind of consciously or not led us down this path. What was it that inspired you to lean so much into the environment and take responsibility for our future? Was it how you grew up or was there a, you know, a transformative event? There was actually, and this will sound funny to you, but in third grade, the science teacher asked us to go down to the pond near our house or a body of water near your house with a jar to take a sample of that water. And I went down to the pond, it was called Horseshoe Pond, and I was living in Concord, Massachusetts. 
And I got a baby food jar and I filled it with water and we brought it back in. This is third grade. And we put a drop of that water in between two glass slides and we looked at it under a microscope. And under the microscope, you could see all these creatures like Dr. Seuss creatures, you know, in what looked like clear water from my local pond. And I fell in love at that moment in time with, you know, science and with environmentalism and with the natural world around me. And it sort of stuck with me forever. You know, it's so interesting. I think the future of humanity turns on those interactions with third grade teachers because it's like so, it's just uncanny how many times you hear about those moments when we're young that just resonated so deeply that no one else could see. But they, when you look back, they actually made such a difference. And I want to start by asking you about the elephant in the room, peculiar to this moment in time with these economic headwinds and all the things that are going on both here in the US and in Europe because I know you're in London today, but you often talk about how there is no opposition between purpose and profit. And we believe very much the same thing at we first. But how would you today with the new market forces, rising ESG and greenwashing regulations, increasing stakeholder expectations, how would you characterize the relationship between purpose and profit in the context of business? Because there are still people sitting on the sidelines. There are still people denying how intense this crisis is. So from your vantage point, what would you share with them? I guess the way I square it for myself, and as you know, I have a very conventional business background before becoming part of Patagonia and the initiatives that I'm engaged in now. I went to Harvard Business School. I was trained at McKinsey & Company back in the early 2000s and 90s. For me, the way you square that circle is by taking a, just a slightly longer view. So that Milton Friedman view expressed very eloquently in his 1970 piece, interestingly published in the New York Times, only makes sense in a world where there's no economic externalities and where time is short. Right. As soon as you look at a world where we're all connected, and, you know, we have to believe that today, and in a world where we're considering our children's generation, that's only 20 years ahead of us, the two things have to come together or there is no future. There can't be a conflict between purpose and profit, because the only long-term profit that makes any sense at all is one where those two things are joined together. And then let me ask you this, because the reality we face in business today is whether it's a crisis like COVID or whether it's economic headwinds that many companies are feeling right now, typically we suspend a focus on that longer horizon line. And in a state of emergency, a horizon line contracts to right in front of us. And all we care about is now in the same way that all we did was care about the next quarterly earnings report. So how do you, what's the singular motivator that even in times of crisis keeps that longer term horizon in place? Yeah. And of course, that's the folly of being a human. And that speaks to our worst natures, not our best natures, right? Right. And as you well know, through your long experiences, it's precisely when everything's changing fast that you need to lift up your gaze and look at the horizon. That's the only way you actually steer through difficulty is to lift your gaze and think about what's the long-term right thing to do, not what's the short-term expedient thing to do. And you know, through the pandemic in Patagonia, I watched Yvonne Chouinard and you know, his family, who are the shareholders of the firm, make the hardest decisions, including suspending some of our retail operations without a single hesitation based on profit, only thinking about what's the long-term benefit of the company. And that's why it's been around 50 years. And I will ask you, Patagonia on the strength of its leadership and heritage is 
uniquely positioned to do that in some ways. Also, up till that point, being a privately held company. But for those publicly traded companies, for those sort of high growth companies that are trying to kind of get footholds in new markets and so on, it's a tall order. So what might you say would be two or three of the key points that you might share at a board level or executive team level to make that case? So for me, you can say that a company like Patagonia is an exception, but I think you and I both can think of other companies that have been around 100 years, like Unilever, for example, sure. that often makes the right decision because they understand that the long-term success of their company is actually based on making those long-term right decisions, not the short-term right decisions. So whenever you're thinking in, I like to think of it like an endowment. So you and I might think of profit and loss for the year, right? A country might think about GDP for the next five years. An endowment, so an organization that needs to think about, for example, for a foundation, for a museum, for example, the Norwegian people, that's endowment thinking. They can't think in terms of what I can buy and sell today. They need to think for what can I hold for the future. And so what I would encourage that board who's going through the topsy-turvy time that we're all in now and will be in in five years too, is think like an endowment. Think like an endowment. Fantastic. You know, I think that's a really quick through line for everyone that can get their head around it. One of the things I've loved about Patagonia over the years, and I've had the chance to speak there and I've written about you guys at length, just to really understand just that mercurial magic that you have going on is you've always provoked this inherent tension, this idea about responsible growth. Yeah. Like, you know, growth that is respectful and nurturing and additive to the planet as well as to the bottom line. Explain that concept to all of us, because the false presumption that we could always go up and to the right forever, and that we had this planet of infinite resources, that's been exposed. At the same time, what is that ceiling on growth? And how do you calibrate how much is too much growth? So walk us through that a bit. Okay. And so the first thing I'll say is we agonize over this more than any other topic. It is often the topic of board meetings. And the Schwenard family, which owned all the shares until recently and still acts as stewards over the charitable foundation that now owns the shares, has a very suspicious and ambiguous relationship to growth, just as you would suspect. They don't believe it's possible for us to go up to the right forever. What we try to distinguish in Patagonia is the difference between being a good and vigorous competitor as a company. And we remain a for-profit company and we want to beat our competition. We want to make a better rain jacket. We want to take share away from our competitors. And the kind of profit-driven growth that would have you doing empty marketing campaigns where you promise things that you can't deliver, or for example, stuffing a wholesale channel full of product in the hope that it pushes through, or creating wholesale partnerships with people who you know don't accurately represent what your values and what you care for. That's the distinction we'd make. So we want to grow what we call natural growth, or pull growth, that's the growth that comes from people wanting and needing your product, but never push growth, which is the kind of growth where you're trying to grow for growth's sake. And even then, we feel there's always a tension around pull growth is, are people buying too many of something they don't need? And so 10 years ago, when Patagonia put out the ad that said, don't buy this jacket, they meant it. They meant it. If you don't need it, don't buy it. If your existing rain jacket can serve two or three purposes, do that. And it is. It's also a sort of a multi-stakeholder participatory mindset where you're as equally responsible 
for the well-being of the planet, you know, as a company that's saying, hey, don't buy this jacket at the same time. I mean, it's not like it's all on business in isolation. And I want to point to the industry at large, the footwear and apparel industry. I mean, textiles, food, and industry are the three sectors that have been just so under scrutiny for so long because of their footprints. And because of that, they've moved more quickly than many others in a shorter period of time. You know, how do you think the industry at large is doing? There's countless examples of what folks are doing through the lens of different brands. Are we getting far enough, fast enough? No. I mean, so first of all, I will paraphrase what Yvonne always says, which is good, not good enough. There are wonderful vignettes in the book Fashionopolis, for example. There are a number of young companies that are doing really smart things. And there are a number of bigger companies that are trying to do good things. But we actually need to move quite a lot faster. I'm thrilled Patagonia was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award at the British Fashion Awards, BAFTAs. And Camilla and I went along to actually accept the award on behalf of- uh, And this is your wife, Camilla, yes. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Because you and I were talking before how being Charles and Camilla, that could lead to things in London. In London, that's a funny thing. We went along to that. It was thrilling for me to see the incredible support in that room for doing better. This is an industry, especially at the fashion end, which everyone loves to criticize. And yet amongst the young people there, amongst the young designers and the young people in that industry- there's a real passion for change, and that's what gives you hope. I hear this, this rumor out here now, because we're based in the States, I'm in Los Angeles, that even those that are kind of leading legacy industries that are harming the planet want things to change. They really see the need to change, but it's almost the machine that has been built is almost bigger than them, and in some ways they're incapable of change, irrespective of their political lens and so on. Are you finding that at all? Do you get a sense that across the board now, not just young people, but all the generations are like, we've got to do things differently? Yes. And I think there's this huge battle that's going on partly in the public eye and much behind the scenes, right? Most public companies, which are the big companies, actually have very large shareholding of a small number of institutions that are endowment shareholders. These are the big pension funds, the big insurance companies, and the big holders of of all kinds of financial assets. Those folks realize that they have to take a long-term approach. They realize that short-term profit maximization will be a huge damage to long-term sustainability. So they're the ones who've been embracing the imperfect words that we know today, ESG, because they recognize that ESG will lead to even better ways of understanding how we can reduce our impacts so that that long-term, again, endowment thinking will actually allow us to join long-term purpose with long-term profit. Those folks are being opposed largely by short-term political forces. And those political forces don't have their eye on the long-term. They have their eye on the next election. And that's why you see this battle playing out. You know, you're there in the United States. It's playing out across many states where governors are saying, I won't have ESG in my state. And you're just pushing a woke agenda. Well, no, it's not a woke agenda. This is the agenda of capital, especially this long-term endowment capital, is long-term profit, not short-term profit. Those forces are so, they're not going to go down without a fight. And in some ways, I see all this sort of pushback as a positive because it's like the death knells, the thrashing of the old ways that are fighting for survival in the face of these new and rising forces. This moment in time is unique, though. One extreme in the work that we do at WeFirst with brands, 
we see those companies that are accused of greenwashing. And the other extreme, you see those who are gun shy and are guilty of green hushing because they're not doing enough all at once, fast enough, and therefore they don't want to point to anything. How would you characterize this moment in time and how would you advise a leader to frame it in their own mind? We like to use the term responsible. You used it earlier. It's one that makes a lot of sense to us. And one way to steer through those two poles of not doing anything and pretending like you're doing more than you're doing is to remember what's responsible. We're very careful about the word sustainable. It's a goal that we're aiming toward. It's not a place that we currently are. We're not a sustainable business. And Yvonne published a book on the responsible company, didn't call it the sustainable company because we're still on a journey toward where we need to be. If you're that company that's trying to green hush, to use your term, if you move toward a position of responsibility, you don't need to claim you are all the way through that journey. You can start in that journey, even if you're a big oil company today, and some of them are actually starting to make that journey. Yeah. If you're greenwashing, right, maybe you should dial it back to being a little bit more thoughtful about making claims that you can actually back up. Couldn't agree more. I mean, this whole idea of being response-able, what response are you able to achieve? And just right. let that be your metric. I was doing a talk about ESG the other day, and I was like, you know, one of the things I was sharing was like, if you want to be trusted, be trustworthy. Because I think a lot of companies are twisting themselves into knots over not doing right. anything, doing mere compliance, doing what the other competitors are doing, not right. doing anything but managing it via the optics of a PR campaign, rather than saying, who do they want to be and how do they want to show up in the world and let that be your guide? How would you characterize that inside Patagonia? Are you so self-defined and self-assured that that is your singular guide? Or is it something you've always got to come back to and point to at every board meeting or executive meeting? What's it like? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think the answer is both, right? Which is Yvonne for 50 years has given us a true north. And that true north gets harder and harder every year. In 2018, he said, you know that old mission where we were going to make the best product, do the least harm and use capitalism to demonstrate the power of business? Yeah, that was good. Not good enough. Now what we're going to do is we're going to be in business to save the home planet. And everyone took a deep gulp and said, okay. How do we do that? Not ambitious enough. Not ambitious <laughs> enough. Come on, go big or go home. Wait, this is our home. Wait, yes. You first, you take a deep gulp and then you think, okay, how can I think about my business through that lens? And that's ultimately what led to the family's decision to transfer all of the shares to a charitable entity so that we can really align ownership and purpose. But to your point, to pretend that that doesn't mean a struggle every day would be false. There's not a glib face behind this. Actually, there's a grumpy face behind this, which is good, but we can do better, right? And all of us can take that position. And the relationship between business and the planet has been so in short retention for so long. And I remember when you took corporate logos off your puffer jackets and there was a great gasp of like incredulity. How could you? We pride ourselves on walking down Sand Hill Road up in San Francisco with the Patagonia jacket on. Like, this is our kind of badge, our club. But that's sort of symbolic of the tension between business and environmental responsibility. How would you characterize the relationship between business and the planet right now? I mean, we've come a long way, but we might be guilty of drinking our own Kool-Aid and we think it's much further than we really need to go. Like, how do you see it from your macro point of view? Yeah. So, I mean, glass half full, glass half empty. The half empty part you've already indicated, right? Which is we sometimes like to pat ourselves on the back for baby steps. 
and we know we can do better. And you know, that really does include Sand Hill Road. You know, they invest in the new technologies of the future, so they think that they're not doing anything dangerous and extractive. It isn't true, right? It isn't true, and we need to be honest about that. On the other hand, you and I can both remember what it was like 20 years ago, and we know how much further along we are today than we were 20 years ago. We have much distance left to travel, but we can't have the perfect be the enemy of the good. We have to encourage even the people who have the farthest to travel to make that first step. I want to dig into that, particularly through the lens of your book, The Imperfectionists, in a minute, but I want to come back to what you shared about the family's decision to execute against that newly stated purpose to save our home planet. Can you walk us through that process and what was that financial instrument you built? Because as I understood it, you looked far and wide for what might be the right way to frame it and it wasn't there, so you had to create something new. So what form did that take? Yeah, that's right. And it took a couple of years. And I think, you know, Yvonne's getting into his mid-80s and he wanted to make a decision about how to provide long-term stewardship for the company. And at the same time, he wanted to put much more resources against the environmental crisis. So those were our two goals of the project that we did over the last couple of years. Yvonne said, look at everything. So we did look at everything. So we looked at the idea of going public, using dual class shares so that we could control the future of the company, go public, raise a ton of money and give that away all at once. Or we thought about, could we bring in a like-minded fellow traveler in private equity and have them take a piece of the business? And they would then promise not to make us do anything against our values. Right. Truth is, as we evaluated all those kind of options that would have given us a huge chunk of money up front to give away fast, all of them in Yvonne's eyes and in the family's eyes would be the thin end of corrupting this clear and clean purpose that the companies operated on for such a long time. So what we began to realize is we needed to give the company to a charitable entity. But as you just mentioned, in the United States, a company cannot be owned by a foundation, right? There's one tiny little exception, which is called the Newman's Own Exception, which was for Paul Newman's company. But that's a tiny little exception. And so we worked with some incredibly smart people. And we came up with a structure that uses something called a perpetual purpose trust and a C4, which is a charitable trust that works very much like a foundation. And the combination of those two things, one owns the shares, one has the economics of the shares, meant that we came up with a structure that could hold Patagonia and satisfy long-term stewardship of this great company and much more money directed toward fighting the environmental crises. And, you know, one of the most powerful and unavoidable impacts was everyone who thought that they were trying to keep up with Patagonia went, oh my God, what did they just do? They just moved or raised the bar. Was the intent behind that, you know, and Yvonne stated publicly that the planet is our only shareholder, is the idea that that becomes the new benchmark for other companies out there? Is it to create, you know, there's things out there like the giving pledge and other big dramatic demonstrations of a reprioritization of the role of money in our lives and future. Like, what is the hope? It's a signal to the future. What was the message? So what Yvonne would say is the giving pledge half, it's not enough, right? And so, yes, I mean, we're trying to set a bar very clearly, trying to set a bar that's beyond the relatively tepid philanthropic contributions, which are mostly far in the future. We're doing it now. That said, we don't want the example that we've set, which is 100% of the shares, to be a barrier against other people making a step forward. So 
An example that you're probably familiar with is MasterCard, which is a giant processor of credit cards. They have a foundation which owns 9% of their shares. And every year they give away something like a billion dollars toward a set of really important goals. So even making a move as small as what they've done, one in 10 of their shares, can move us much toward the future. Or Michael Bloomberg recently committed all of the future value of his company to the charitable interests of his foundation. So we do hope that that sets a bar that the lucky people, the people who control most of the resources on the planet, will direct to doing good. But we also recognize that people still need to make that first step. Right, right. And I noticed too that MasterCard notably announced they're not only tethering executive comp to their ESG goals, but the compensation for everyone in the company. Right. Every single employee of MasterCard, as large as it is, is really invested in executing right. against those ESG goals, again, raising the bar. Right. And what do you think this means for the future of your industry in particular? I mean, we see re-commerce, we see renting gear, we see sort of buy less, we see the priorities shifting in younger demographics. With all of these new priorities in place, what does that mean for an industry, for example, that was famous for fast fashion? And here we are moving the other way. Does that mean certain companies are going to fall away? Is it a different type of company that's going to be developed? Are the proceeds of those companies going to be used in different ways? What does the future of the industry look like? Well, I mean, I think that's the great battle that plays out in front of us. And I mean, I love the innovations that you just described are exactly the right ones. So we're all going to have to move toward a more recircular economy. We're all going to have to use regenerative techniques when we use natural fibers and recycled fibers when we use synthetic fibers. As you point out, young people today are already used to using our warnware service where when something's broken and worn out, send it back to us. We'll fix it up. We'll give you a coupon against your next thing you want to purchase, or we'll send it back to you repaired, or we'll sell it on to someone else repaired. Especially for things you only use once or twice a year, renting is a really good option. And I think if you look at young people today, they're going to hold companies to much higher account. They're going to purchase a smaller number of things, and they're going to really put thought and research into those things, and then they're going to look after them. And I think the fast fashion element of our industry will disappear as it must. What's that expression from your lips to God's ears? Or I believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you had a unique vantage point on having been invested in the environmental movement for so long. You and I both have a bit of gray hair now, whether through the lens of 1% for the planet or the B Corp movement or the broader environmental movement. What are some of the observations, insights, or guidelines you might give us for building industry-wide movements that are going to course correct our future? Well, you're great friends with Rick Ridgway, and I think Rick has been one of the genuine leaders working across the industry, not just in Patagonia, right? And the starting point there has to be purpose. You know, you write about purpose a lot. Patagonia has a very clear purpose as a company, but the cross-industry organizations like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition need to have common purpose across the entire industry, right? So we can work at multiple levels in purpose. And I think by having those dialogues in an open and honest way and holding each other to account, not just internally in our companies, but across our industry, maybe together, shoulder to shoulder, we can actually accomplish much more than any one company can do on its own. I want to point to your book, The Imperfectionist, because there's an interesting balancing act 
between being uncompromising in terms of your principles, as you've spoken to in so many different ways with Patagonia, but then not allowing perfection to get in the way of progress. So tell us a little bit about what it means to be an imperfectionist. An imperfectionist, I think it's entirely consistent with the conversation we've been having. So you're true to your purpose, your audacious, unachievable, wonderful purpose. And of course, each time you get close to achieving it, you lift that bar, right? As right. Yvonne did in 2018. And yet the day-to-day -day of it, we actually have to get started. And getting started means being an experimentalist. There was a time when the world was changing less quickly, when we could develop very fancy strategic frameworks. And you remember, so for example, you would carefully analyze industry structure and from it, you would deduce what the conduct of the individual players would be. And then you would craft a strategy that might be a five-year strategy and it would be a document this thick. Well, none of that, it makes any sense anymore, right? The world's with artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, programmable biology, it's all changing too quickly. So our strategy work needs to be dynamic problem solving. And dynamic problem solving starts with experimentation, being curious, collecting new data, crowdsourcing ideas from collective intelligence, and then actually getting started. And that's what being an imperfectionist is. An imperfectionist says, I've got a big goal. I don't know what the intermediate steps will be, but I know I can do these two or three steps right now. And if I do those steps, some of them will fail and I'll learn from those failures and I won't punish my people for the failures. I'll only punish people for hubris, right? right. Which is right. thinking they know more than they know. Sure. And we will literally bootstrap ourselves by small sets of relatively low consequence, reversible steps that take us toward those audacious goals. That's imperfectionism. And we touched on some examples in the context of Patagonia, but is there one that you share in the book that you think is just really illustrative of what that can look like? Something that might not be sure. Patagonia. Well, there's lots. I mean, so let's take Amazon, which is a giant retailer. So in 2005, they weren't in the consumer financial services business. And they decided that it would be important for their business that they do get into that business. So by 2007, they made a number of steps. One of them was buying a small failed fintech company. Another was hiring a team from another fintech company. They made a small investment in a fintech technology company. They bought some IP via that investment. Most of those steps look like failures when you look at them in the context of what they actually did. Because most of those three things that I just described, they actually shut down. But when you look over the course of 2007 to 2023, they were the beginnings of a series of steps, each one of which was relatively modest, each one of which was reversible if it hadn't worked, which now leads them to having something like a 24% share via Amazon Pay across the overall retail economy. Well, that's a remarkable achievement. And that comes from small reversible steps that bootstrap them to this remarkable place. Their balance sheet could have allowed them to buy a big bank or consumer finance company. They didn't do it that way because that's not the way you build deep learning inside the organization. Well, I think it's a really powerful reason to maintain those long-term horizons as well, not just in terms of your role in the world, but what that allows you to do in terms of innovation. Was the inspiration in some ways, I think like so many things these days, is it, was it about mimicking nature in some ways and the adaptive nature? Darwin's always misquoted, but it's about being adaptive, you know? Entirely, in, entirely, yeah. right? I mean, you know, the very heart of the scientific method is one where you come up with a hypothesis, 
In our case, we call it, you know, an audacious goal, but that's a hypothesis. And then you test it out by doing a number of steps, right? And through those steps, you learn, you build your own capabilities. Sometimes you add assets to your quiver and it's entirely consistent with the Darwinian approach of experimentation. And sometimes, you know, we write a book, you and I are both guilty of doing so, and you lay out something that has inherent logic and value, yet to get people to embrace it with all the realities and how time poor they are and resource and bandwidth poor, it's so, so hard. So how would you advise people, for example, they read the book and they want to apply it at a leadership company-wide level to actually embrace that new mindset? So I'll just say a couple of things. One is make sure you've got that audacious goal, because as you point out, through all the work that you've done, purpose is that north that people need to remember to aim for and to be really specific about that. And then the critical thing is for top leadership not to think that they're the strategists. Right. They're the least qualified to be the strategist. The people who actually do dynamic strategy are the people who are closest to the coal face, the closest to customers and potential customers. Right. So we have to trust those people to make those relatively small, reversible decisions. And we have to trust them to make failures and reward them when they make failures where we learn. Only the small number of strategic decisions, which are closed door decisions, meaning you can't go back through the door where you have genuine bet the company decisions, and there are very, very few of those, should be pushed up the chain. So right. small groups of people closest to the problem working dynamically in problem-solving partnerships, that's the future of companies and that's the future of strategy. And moving from internal stakeholders and company culture and what leadership looks like internally to those external advocates, call them consumers, or maybe we shouldn't, but call them your sort of brand ambassadors out there who are buying your product. Patagonia has been so masterful at telling stories that resonate deeply with people that they want to share. How do you approach digital storytelling video content. What is the secret sauce you think inside Patagonia that has allowed so many people to embrace it? Because I've got to tell you, whether it's on Facebook or another channel, every time you do something that is such a singular expression of the integrity of your intent and action, I see so many people respond and talk about it and share it of their own choosing. And that's where the magic is. I mean, it all comes back to who you are and how you show up, obviously, but how do you approach it from a digital content point of view? Yeah, it's like trying to sort of get lightning in a bottle, isn't it? You're a brand thinker, so I'm going to use the term you know I'm going to use, which is authenticity. Yeah. The only way you get real authenticity, because our athletes are the most suspicious people on the planet, right? They, right. When brand people come toward them, they go the other direction, right? So the people who are out in the field, whether they're surfing or fishing or climbing mountains or skiing down mountains... The critical thing is to be out there with them and to be experimentalists with them, right? right? So the very best thing we can do is to do prototypes of the next generation of what we're doing and get it on real people, right? Not just fancy ambassadors, but the real people who are your ski coach or your guide when you're fishing or the coach when you're learning how to surf. Those people are the people who are authentic practitioners of their art, their craft, and the way you engage with them, you know, which is we make great gear, help us break the gear so that we make it better next time. That's how you bottle that lightning. That's where authenticity comes from. And boy, those people smell fake a hundred miles away. 
Oh, I remember your campaign stories we wear and there was the guy with the board shorts, gaffer taping his board shorts together or glue gunning things. And, you know, I really took away from that, that yes, there's the literal fabric that people wear, but it's the emotional fabric of their lives that they're so attached to, that they're so excited to share. And I can't help but think in this dialogue shifts from shareholder value to stakeholder value that we're on the cusp of this really, really exciting time for business. We're going to reinvent ourselves. And I'll share that I went to the sacred headwaters of the Amazon and spent some time with some indigenous tribes over the new year. And a couple of things struck me, which I came away with, and this is through translators there, which was their understanding of wealth or prosperity. One thing they said was they consider that anyone who takes more than they need and therefore threatens the well-being of the whole, it's a considered a sign of mental unhealth. And then the other thing was they consider a rich person or a wealthy person, someone who has enough to give away to others. Those things land really heavily when you really think on them, you see them as a living and breathing life experience. So how should we think about wealth, success, moving forward, given the stakes that are in play? Well, I love your example. That's a particularly favorite place of mine as well. I've spent a lot of time there. And for me, when you're in nature the way you were in that area, you don't find yourself wanting much. And I think that there's a really important message that you took away in your dialogue with those folks. I spent a lot of time in Sweden. I love Northern cultures too. They have a word that really sticks with me. It's called lagom. What does it mean? It means just enough. And in Sweden, if you were to serve yourself, let's say at Christmas dinner, a giant helping, you would be violating Lagom. For Swedes consider it rude to take more than just enough. And I honestly think it's in all of us, right? It's this notion of competition that we're caught up in, that we've been taught. It isn't what's in us fundamentally, right? It's something that we were taught roughly in the last 70 years. We can unlearn that. And I believe this fundamentally. The progress that we've seen, the innovation that's come with this kind of capitalism is exciting. But we know that it's come at a price that's too heavy to bear. And we need to return to that spirit that you described, which is just enough and enough perhaps to give to others. And we can. I think we can do that without losing the innovative spirit and creativity that comes along with this capitalist model. No, I agree. I think it's just a different creative brief. It's actually a springboard for innovation and so on. And I agree, it is about unlearning. And I think one of the great reasons I'm optimistic about the future is we don't need to learn something new. We need to remember what we forgot. Right on. Which is so inherent within us, chemically hardwired into us, our connection to each other and the planet. And if we just allow ourselves to be in that, not only in how we show up, but how we support others and the planet, then a lot will take care of itself. It's not as hard as everybody thinks, I would suggest, especially when you think about the regenerative capacity of nature, just let nature do what it does, both to address the climate emergency and therefore to nurture nature itself. Let me right. ask you, what gives you cause for optimism in these interesting times, shall we say? I think it's easy to be depressed. These times feel very perilous, don't they? It's easy to be depressed. Spend some time with 15-year-olds or 18-year-olds. The future that they want, the future that they will bring into being via their choices is a future that I think we can embrace. And when you think about the most powerful environmentalist in the world over the last five or six years, it was a skinny 15-year-old girl from Sweden who did more to change how we think about things than any of the powerful environmentalists or government actors, right? And let's remember that. That's where you get out. 
I think that's very, very true. And it also speaks to the role that each of us have in terms of our own agency for change. There's no one coming to do it for us. Every moment in our own lives is a lever for change, should we choose. Where we put our money, what we eat, what car we drive, where we put our attention. And I think together, there's nothing we can't do. And I want to thank you, Charles, for your leadership, both out front and behind the scenes for so, so long in ways that have kind of put us all on notice. Everyone in business and by extension, society at large, thank you. And I highly recommend everyone grab a copy of Imperfectionist because if you ever wanted to know what works from those who have really done it, Charles has put it all in there. So do grab a copy of The Imperfectionist. And Charles, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Simon. What a pleasure. This has really been far beyond my expectations. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. And you can always find out more information about today's guest in the show notes of each episode. Our show is made possible by a partnership between We First, a strategic consultancy driving growth and impact for purpose-led brands, and Goal 17 Media that's building greater awareness of and financing for purpose-led companies. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you'd like to dive even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is now available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you on the next episode. And until then, let's all lead with we.